Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Joe. Now, if you read the title, Carbon Dioxide and Bicarbonate, it might sound like it's not going to be a very interesting podcast, but I'm telling you, this is what makes critical care so much fun and so interesting. The details. Critical care is all about the details. So, when you go ahead and you get your patient's labs, whether it be a BMP or a CMP, being basic metabolic panel or complete metabolic panel respectively, you obtain the usual lab values. You know, the sodium, potassium, chloride, carbon dioxide, which is sometimes CO2, as well as glucose, BUN, creatinine, etc. The value of all those that seems to cause the most conf- confusion is carbon dioxide. This especially happens when I'm teaching during rounds. I usually have some students with me or whatnot, where my mind switches the carbon dioxide immediately to bicarbonate or serum bicarbonate or bicarb levels or bicarb. How's that for a run-on sentence? Well, it definitely perplexes folks with lesser experience who are usually too shy to ask me why I have done this. I know everybody, I'm a very intimidating person. Ultimately, acid-based arrangements are of the utmost importance in the critically ill. We obsess, as I mentioned, over the details in the ICU, and it's paramount to get it right and understand exactly what we're looking at. The first question we need to ask ourselves is, what are we looking for when we assess the serum carbon dioxide slash serum bicarb level? Well, honestly, this is a pro tip. Looking at the carbon dioxide level, <clears throat> excuse me, serum bicarb level, is extremely helpful to identify what's wrong with your patients. Since many people don't pay attention to this lab value, things get missed. It's possibly my favorite part of the metabolic panel. It's where the sexy stuff lives. Going over a long differential diagnosis is not the point of this podcast. However, my point is that a downtrending serum bicarb or carbon dioxide level is something that should not be ignored. You know, you see the people who have a normal serum bicarb of 24, then the next day it's 18, then the next day it's 14, and they're not looking quite right. Hey, if you would have been a little bit more alert, and noticed that that serum bicarb was trending down, you would have noticed that something was going on with that patient right underneath your nose. Possibly would have been able to stop it before it even got as bad as it is at the moment that you're panicking, calling the ICU, trying to get your patient transferred because you have no idea what happened. An example of this is that you have no no idea how many times intensivists such as myself received consoles for tachypnea with an extensive workup that included chest CTs to rule out PEs as well as to look for other funky stuff. Patients would get chest x-rays, VQ scans, etc. All the clinician really needed to do was to identify that the patient was developing a metabolic acidosis, as I mentioned before, the CO2 downtrending, and go down that route. You know, ultimately it could save a bunch of money and morbidity for your patient. Many times, it's a hypochloremic metabolic acidosis that's secondary to saline. You know, after all, there's 154 milliequivalents per liter of saline, you know, and we normally have about mm, 98 to 109, which is the typical reference range for chloride in our body. But don't worry, I'm not going to go down the road of talking about saline. That's going to be for another podcast. At this time, you're probably fed up as to why I keep on interchanging bicarbonate and carbon dioxide. But here's the reason why I'm doing this. First of all, the analyzers in the lab, you know, downstairs, the people who you have to call to hurry things up, Just kidding, lab folks. I love you all. What the lab measures is total carbon dioxide content. And the way it does this is by enzymatic methods, methods that are above my lab knowledge pay grade. Honestly, I'm not going to 
go down that rabbit hole because you'll click off this podcast. But since these labs measure the total CO2, these auto analyzers do not measure bicarbonate directly. And that's the reason why it's called carbon dioxide rather than bicarbonate. So why do I personally call it serum bicarbonate instead of serum carbon dioxide? As I just mentioned to you, what it, men- what it measures is total carbon dioxide. Well, the thing is that total carbon dioxide is approximately 95% bicarbonate, which to me, it's close enough. And then the rest of the total carbon dioxide includes dissolved car- carbon dioxide, carbon- carbonate ions, and carbamino compounds. Figure that that component makes about 5% of the other stuff. In my book, 95% bicarb is going to be called bicarb, and that's my opinion. Great, now you're going to start calling it serum bicarb as well. Or wait, do you always call it serum bicarb? Because I've learned from a lot of folks that they've always called it serum bicarb, and they didn't know why. Well, now you know why. But now that we all know it's serum bicarb, why don't we just change the name? Well, honestly, we're dealing with something that has historical precedent. It technically is more accurate to be called carbon dioxide rather than bicarbonate. At first, I wanted to change the name, but after educating myself better, I'm okay with the current structure. So what's the normal bicarb level that we should see in the serum? Well, the rule of thumb is 24. Think of the number of Ken Griffey Jr. Oh wait, most of the people watching this podcast, excuse me, listening to this podcast are too young to know uh, who Ken Griffey Jr. was. But the ranges honestly depend on the lab. My shop, for example, uses 22 to 32 milliequivalents per liter. But then you might ask yourself, okay, when, when the serum bicarb is low, why do, why do clinicians check an arterial blood gas? And usually it's to directly assess the acid-base status. In other words, to make sure that the lungs are trying to compensate for the metabolic derangement. For example, if the patient has a metabolic acidosis, the normal, sh- the normal response should be tachypnea, you know, to blow off the CO2. If the patient has a metabolic alkalosis, they should be attempting to retain some CO2. Again, this explanation is rudimentary, but this is a podcast. Now, when you look at arterial blood gases that it has printed out on it, a bicarb level, are these real numbers? Well, this might surprise you, but did you know that this is a calculated value as opposed to a directly measured value? Don't feel about this because most people don't. This includes many respiratory therapists, and hey, even some attendings, such as myself, didn't know this or don't know this. I mean, there was one day where, when I didn't know this. I mean, I wasn't born knowing everything. But when we order a blood gas, the machine measures the PCO2 and the pH. Notice that I did not mention bicarb. The reason for this is because the technology used by these machines is something I can't say. Again, the show notes have links for papers and details for places where you could look up how to um, say potentiometric. I'm not, I'm not even going to try that. But either way, here's where you have to remember your organic chemistry and your chemistry when we talk about the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation, which I'm not going to talk about pKa and logarithmics and all that. But in order to calculate the pH, excuse me, in order to calculate the serum bicarb, you have to have the pH and the pCO2. You plug that into the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation, and voila, you have yourself a calculated serum bicarb. I can see it already. Your mind is blown. You did not know that the bicarb in a blood gas, whether it be an arterial blood gas or a venous blood gas, you didn't know it was calculated. You feel deflated. 
hey, at least that's how I felt. But could this still be, even though it's a calculated, if it's a calculated number, could this still be used interchangeably with that obtained from the BMP or the CMP? My opinion is that, yes, it could still be used interchangeably. Remember, what you're looking for in this value is something to help you take care of your patient. The exact number being off by one or two is not going to change your management. There are, however, some scenarios where the lab could get it wrong and give us some low values when the serum bicarb is not actually low. Some examples of this include hyperlipidemia, although I can't say that I've seen this in practice. I cannot comment on what values of hyperlipidemia should incite concern, but we can see spurious high values of serum bicarb in patients who have a high lactate dehydrogenase, or LDH. We're seeing a lot of patients with COVID now who have a high LDH, so just keep this in mind. Ultimately, since the bicarb from the blood gas is calculated via an equation, these spurious results by the hyperlipidemia or the LDH will not be seen. Now we're going to go over some quick cases, including a case for metabolic acidosis and metabolic alkalosis, where we're going to learn a little bit more about this stuff. The first case is a consultation I got for a hypothetical patient who recently started looking unwell, and I got the, com the complaint from the hospital medicine doctor. Again, this is hypothetical. Hospital medicine doctors don't make mistakes, just like I don't make mistakes, that the patient had a high risk of crashing. At that time, they looked hemodynamically stable, vitals looked okay. Clinically, they did not look too bad, but they were just tachypnic. Ultimately, though, the patient was a ticking time bomb. Through the course of the hospitalization over several days, their serum bicarb, as I mentioned earlier, on another hypothetical example, downtrended from 24 to 20, 16, 15, and ultimately, by the time I got the call, the serum bicarb was at 9. Had this downtrend of serum bicarb had been identified sooner, perhaps we could have intervened. Pardon me for being short on past medical history and clinical details, there's far more nuance than what I could go through here, but if this patient had an underlying lactic acidosis, the source of the acidosis could have been addressed. If this was a patient who had a hypochloremic metabolic acidosis, perhaps we could have stopped the saline and switched it to something else, but nonetheless, we could have done something a little bit sooner. In the next case, one of metabolic alkalosis, we have a patient who has a serum bicarb of 46. I'm not going to go into an extensive, extensive differential on this, but when you have a patient who has an elevated serum bicarb, it's usually because of a metabolic compensation for respiratory acidosis. Some examples of this are people who are chronic CO2 retainers, and this could include cases of patients with COPD, OSA, which is obstructive sleep apnea, or obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Now, we also see this in patients who are aggressively diuresing with Lasix, also called furosemide, and that's what we call contraction alkalosis. So a quick, quick teaching point. Want to think of three quick differentials for patients who have an elevated serum bicarb? Look for COPD ears, OSA, and OHS. Sometimes the three of them go together with very heavy set folks. And a lot of times these people are retaining a lot of fluid, so you start diuresing them, and they already have an elevated carbon dioxide, and you're just going to watch it go up and up and up. 
In those cases, you have to consider giving these patients, and again, none of this is medical advice, but you have to consider giving the patient something like acetazolamide. But ultimately, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast, learned a little bit about the importance of the serum carbon dioxide slash serum bicarb, because it's a little detail that a lot of people don't know about, but now you're an expert and you're going to help save some lives. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.